Podcasting fellows, DM Liz. Hi, I'm Liz. DM Jim. I'm sorry, I can't say hello. I'm laughing. And DM Glenn. Hi, I'm, I'm Jim. Hi, I'm Mike. <laughs> I can't even hold it together. Chove and Jeff on uh, Spellbird just accused Glenn and I of being Mike and Liz. You guys are Mike and Liz. And, and then we had trouble deciding who got to be Liz. How did, you got to how be did Mike. that come about? Did you roll for it? It's complicated. No, that would have made sense. That would have made I'd make <laughs> Rock, Liz. paper, Liz. <laughs> Rock, yeah, paper, lizard, scissors, spot. lizard, spot. <laughs> or would well, that be I, Lizard, Gygax? Yeah. Uh, well, I think Jim should be Liz because he likes Doctor Who. Ooh, he's got you there. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, oh. this episode is going to be an email-only episode, with perhaps a voicemail thrown in there just to keep everyone guessing. And I was made to do the intro to this episode because apparently I lost a bet of some kind without realizing it. And now I'm turning the reins back over to DM Liz. Oh. No, no, I can't do the Vince thing. <laughs> and we get feedback all the time that there's not enough Liz on the show, and then somebody wrote in this week saying, please don't make Liz read all the emails. Well, no, I think email. that was more raging kind of thing. You know, we do that because we'll shut up more if Liz is reading them. At least I will. Something. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, all I know is we've trained our listeners to write our material for us, and that's gold. Yes, hey. thank you all. Yeah. Yeah, every few episodes we can we can just do an email bag, which saves yeah, a yeah. lot of work on our part, let me tell you. Well, it's a lot easier um, a lot easier than my show. It's like, you know, pulling teeth to get Brian to do an email show on there. <laughs> Even if we have like 12 emails. No, we don't have enough. What do you mean we don't have enough? Enough? <laughs> three hours of email? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we could easily do an hour of emails every show, and we do. <laughs> Anyway. Anyway. All right. Well, before what? we dig into the email, let's uh, take a quick break for various information, and we'll hear a listen of basic impressions from DM Kojo. Okay. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land. This is Ronald Korn, uh, principal at Haddon Heights High School and amateur gamer. Uh, I should say amateur game designer. Um, recently, I kind of hit the wires with a, a request or a plea for old school gaming um, and so some supplies to Haddon Heights High School. Um, 
trying to get a gaming group off the ground. And, uh, you know, certainly budgets are hard in high school. So we're looking for anyone out there who could possibly uh, donate some supplies. Uh, we're looking for anything that you have, anything that, uh, you know, for ranging from minis to dice to uh, old school books, um, any condition, uh, any addition, any game. Uh, really, we're looking, you know, I'm trying to raise a new generation of gamers and uh, looking at any means and uh, any available way to do so especially looking at playing some of the classics. Uh, so if you have any um, AD&D materials or basic Dungeons & Dragons, uh, any uh, first edition, second edition, old player's handbook, um, old DM's guide, old adventures, it doesn't matter, whatever condition, uh, we will certainly uh, you know take what you have. Uh, again, Ronald Korn, Principal Haddon Heights, uh, looking for donations to help support our gaming club. Um, appreciate anything you can do. Thanks. Hi, uh, yeah, Ronald Corn again. And if you have any, um, if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached uh, by email at ronaldcorn at gmail.com. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. I am on Facebook as well as uh, at Ronald Corn, and uh, I appear on some of the blogs as Demi Corn, D E M I C O R N. Uh, you can find me at the Kobold uh, Press blog site. I tend to work there a little bit and every once in a while on the um, you know the other gaming forums so you guys are in the misty mug what are you doing I am buying a bloody mermaid a blind as always sunshine comes out from the back she actually needs some help with the problem what problem there's rats in the cellar oh god giant rats I presume I don't know do you want to go check it out so you guys make your way down into the cellar. Sure enough, amongst the crates and barrels, there are nine giant rats. Remember the last time we fought giant rats? They nearly killed us. In the nest of the giant rats is 2,000 copper pieces. Huh. 20 gold. One's copper. It's 2,000. <laughs> we came here to help Sunshine with their problem. We had to fight the giant rats. Initiative. Yeah. Check out the Delvers podcast at burnedeffects.com. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. But which I would be willing to share with you. To do then now would be retro. To do then then yeah. was very natural, yeah. if you will. It's coming. What? The idea, the spark. I got it, I got it. Basic impressions. Hello there. This is DM Kojo, and this is my basic impression. My basic impression today is about my first experience with Dungeons & Dragons, and that was the Frank Menser Red Box Basic Set. Now, this game, Dungeons & Dragons, to me was almost a mythical holy grail because I'd heard of the game from older boys that were playing, but of course I was not allowed as a fifth grader to come hang out with the older boys and play. So I always was interested in getting this game, but my parents and my grandparents bought into this rhetoric of Dungeons and Dragons is devil worship. And so every time I asked for this game for my birthday or for Christmas, I was flatly told no. Well, eventually I was able to convince my mother to get me the box set. After all, this was right before a very long road trip and she knew I needed something to entertain me for the hours and hours on end that we would be on the highway. So she got me the box and we piled into the station wagon and off we went down the road, Lionel Richie music playing over the radio, and here I am opening up this 
red, beautiful box with this awesome red dragon on the cover. And inside, the first thing I see is these powder blue dice, unlike any dice I'd ever seen before. Weird shapes. How cool is that? And a crayon. What's the crayon for, I wondered. Well, obviously, you have to color in the dice so you can read the numbers. That was fantastic. So then I start reading the rule book. Player's book. Read this first. And I love how it introduces people to the world of Dungeons & Dragons and how the game works. Um, the solo adventure at the beginning really gives a person who doesn't know what D&D is about a feel for what it is this game is. So as I tried to convince my sister there in the back seat to play the game, being six, she wasn't really interested. That's okay. I read the rules. I read them twice, in fact. Then I sat down, made some characters, started rolling up some dice, rolling up some characters. My first one was a halfling. I just thought that was a very interesting concept for a character. I remember uh, the halfling. Sadly, I don't remember what I named the halfling, but I do remember that that was my first character. And I continued to make characters and draw maps and get ready to play. And when we arrived at our destination, I asked anybody and everybody at the hotel to come play this fun game with me. And I couldn't get any takers. So I knew I would have to wait till I returned home from vacation and went back to school to my fifth grade class and see if I could find any other kids who were willing to take part in this awesome new game I had. So when we got back from vacation, that's exactly what I did. And sure enough, I was able to find two boys who were interested in the game, one of whom had played a little bit with some older boys. So we would go out on recess, and while other kids were playing tag and dodgeball and marbles, we'd be sitting down playing Dungeons & Dragons. It was shortly after that that I got my first adventure module. I remember specifically it was the U3 Advanced D&D module, the final enemy. And I didn't know what Advanced D&D was versus regular D&D. And so this worked out fine. I was converting things without even realizing I was converting them. And we had a great time with it. Continued from there to play for years and years. Sadly... I eventually did, after graduating from high school, uh, decide that role-playing was something I didn't want to continue. And I sold my very large collection of gaming items. What I did with the money I got, who knows. Wasted it. Probably on girls. Hard to tell. Anyways, so it's years later now. Fast forward 22 years. Here I am, curious about D&D. Wondering if people still play, heard about this fourth edition thing. And what do I do? I go on, I find these fabulous podcasts about other people who are still playing the old versions of the game that I really enjoyed. So I go on eBay, and what do I do? I go out, first thing I do, get myself a new Menser red box off of eBay to replace the one that I sold years ago. And although the dice in it are green instead of blue... It still gives me the same feelings when I crack open that box, pull out that book, read through the books, which I try to do from time to time. It's a great nostalgia trip, plus it's a great game to play. Uh, My oldest son is seven, so when he's about the same age I was when I started, I plan on introducing him to the game. And when I do that, I will definitely use the Menser Redbox rules to start him. 
both for nostalgia and because I think they do an excellent job of introducing new players to the game. So that's my basic impression of the Mensa Red Box. Hope you've enjoyed my stroll down memory lane. And I look forward to hearing other people's basic impressions of their classic D&D experiences in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Gojo. Thanks, Gojo. Yeah, it's good to hear from you again. Yes, it is. That guy is omnipresent. <laughs> Ian Rust. He's also fl- fluorescent. He's a bright boy. Bioluminescent. Bio- oh, you got me there. So so what have you been doing this week, Mike? Uh, grading tests. Gotcha. <laughs> I swear, one of my essay questions I was asking, yeah. you know, what were the political differences between Hamilton and <clears throat> Jefferson in George Washington's first cabinet? Mm-hmm. I kid you not, one of my students wrote about Alexander Hamilton's views and George Jefferson's views. <laughs> <laughs> but, but not Wheezy. No, we- Wheezy got no mention whatsoever. It might, it might surprise you to know that George Jefferson was anti-slavery. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course he was. You can't move on up. To the top. Oh, it, it was just amazing, too, because I was in my study, which is next door to Mike's, uh-huh. and he's got the, the screen reader reading the answers. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm just sort of half paying attention doing it, and all of a sudden I hear George Jefferson. And I went, <laughs> what? <laughs> that and the, the snickering giggles from me pretty much told her she she heard it. And that wasn't the only reference, you know. I, I could have let that slide with just maybe a typo or just, you know, distracted. But now, two or three times it was mentioned like that. Oh, Lord. Wow. <laughs> God. It seems like there's a way you could turn that into a game so you could still get some gaming in on those kind of weeks, like a little table of random uh, grades to get assigned for answers like that. I think well, should... I roll it. Uh, basically, in each unit, there are four chapters, and for the discussions, I choose one of the discussions randomly to grade to add for extra credit, and I determine that by rolling D4s, so, you know, that's kind of thing. <laughs> hey, that's turn, awesome. Mike, make uh, it fun for yourself. Uh, turn it into a drinking game. <laughs> oh, God, no. Not job, every job student actually hits a, hits a point that you, want, that you put out there, take a drink. Oh, that way I'd never take think. a drink. Yeah, they be, get the answer right. Yeah, you'd be stone cold sober. <laughs> yeah, barely have alcohol on my breath at that point. Yeah. Hopefully, nobody at the university listens to the podcast. They're like, "Wait a minute, we hired this guy who rolls random dice and drinks while he grades." <laughs> <laughs> Although the chair of my department might, he's pretty cool. You know, he mentioned the the secret of the universe of forty two during a. Uh, faculty party, so. Nice. Yeah. That was 52. Well, that's all right. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Anyway, emails. We're talking emails. Emails. Okay. So, you don't care what anyone else has done gaming this week, then. Oh, yeah, that's right. God. <laughs> Ask Jim. Ask Jim. I didn't get to do anything. I was grading tests, so screw the rest of you. Well, <laughs> what oh, have God. you been doing, Liz? You didn't even play basic D&D with us, Mike. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't do anything except grade tests. <laughs> and grumble in the background when we were playing. Well, yep. I played basic D&D with 
Jim and Glenn. Uh-huh. Uh, Mike was not able to join us because his old headset had died, so he wasn't able to con- to be on Skype with us. But he's got a new one, as you can tell, so hopefully that won't happen again mm. in the future. Um, did that. We did our usual second edition game um, yesterday, this past Saturday. And the only other gaming that I do, aside from that, is a play-by-post game that a friend of ours runs. Oh, wow. Get out. You don't do play-by-post? Yeah, mm-hmm. he's got a, it's a board, you know, kind of set up the way Dragon's Foot is. Uh-huh. And you just, you sign on, and you've got the different forums. And, like, for instance, the current forum that you get onto to say what your character is doing is called Chapter 2. Right. And, um, I think so, it's a pro board, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a, it's a pro board, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just get on there, see what's been done, and if there's anything that I want my character to do, I say, you know, Aaliyah has done this, da-da-da-da-da, and wait to see what happens. Uh, usually the guy who's running it, if he has any questions or if I have questions that are kind of out of character, I'll just private message him and um, get things resolved that way before I actually post it on the main board where everyone can see. Right. Hey. You are you are the old school queen, play by post. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's something, I can't do that. I can't do play by email. Is it, that kind of stuff just drives me crazy. Yeah, I've tried, but I just—it's hard for me to keep my interest level on yeah. play by post. Um, although I suppose if we really want to be old school, we'd play by eat by snail mail. Yeah, boy. There's wow. some people, some people out there still play chess that way. Mm. <laughs> and it works for them, I guess. Hey, 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 Jim, hey, Jim, what have you been doing? I want to hear about that impromptu character funnel you had. Oh wait, Liz has. Oh, sorry. Game. I'm sorry. You had the yeah, team. We haven't even heard about Mead yet this episode. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mead was not with us this past time. Um, she's just started working at a pharmacy in the area, and as oh. the as the local, <laughs> we won't see her for a while. No. <laughs> no, no, no. She's like a pharmacy tech, and as the new hire, she's been starting to get a lot of the weekend schedules. Oh yeah. So. Yeah. Um, she may be out of the game for a while. Yeah, but this past weekend and the weekend before, they scheduled her on Saturday, and she wasn't able to join us. So oh, That's too bad. But, how did but we're hoping that you know sooner or later they're going to hire someone else, and she'll stop being the new girl, and you know that person will start getting all the Saturdays. So, so not would she? Hopefully, she'll be able to join us again, maybe in a couple of months. Okay. To get her priorities straight, because I already had the Gen Con conversation with my boss. I'm like, you know, he's like, how many days do you want to take? And I'm like, how many can I have? And he's like, how many do you want to take? I'm like, oh, all of them. <laughs> yeah. Of course, your boss is your brother. Isn't that right? That's technically true. but So that does kind of help. Nepotism <laughs> always helps. So how did, of course, so your how, brother hates you, and then it doesn't help at all. But, so but how it's did a the, good relationship then. So how did the two game go? Well, it went pretty well. Um, at I'm five, stuck. Yeah, we're in kind of a lost world type of area. Oh, boy. And so Ooh. dinosaurs abound. Mm-hmm. I think every single one of us was grabbed and mauled by some kind of a dinosaur <laughs> during the last game session. I was violated by a dinosaur. 
And then we end up getting meeting a copper dragon and finding out that the copper dragon has kept this whole lost world valley as his own private collection. Yeah, he's, it's like it's like we're a ter, we're in a terrarium or of some sort, and everything that's in here, the dinosaur has deliberately placed, and you know has them make sure they can breed, and it's like there was this elf whom we had helped to rescue who had been trapped there for about a century or so. And then the dragon is mad at us because he had that elf there specifically because she had blonde hair and was really hoping that he could introduce that strain to the elves that were already in the area. The caveman elves that he... Cave elves. So, yeah, dude, I love that. I, I mean, I love the whole Edgar Rice Burroughs, Pellucidar, Sanders. Yeah, well, you know what? It really sucks using spells on an 18-hit die Tyrannosaurus Rex because they always make their freaking save. Yep. Uh, you know, I... Oh. That's, that, that's how you get to be an apex predator. <laughs> oh, yep. Yeah, yeah. The dragon had considered taking Mike's elf character as a replacement but apparently wasn't too keen on the idea because she only had black hair and so wasn't as pretty as the other elf that we had gotten had a out of a prettier pelt. Yes. And basically he's just, you know, talking to the elf like she's some sort of, you know, highly intelligent house cat of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> and my character... Like, I'm a chimp who learned how to sign, you know. <laughs> asking for grapes, Coco asking for grapes or something. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like, okay, thank you. <laughs> that sounds like a great game to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it certainly was not boring. Mm-hmm. And so we have agreed to do a task for the dragon, which will be the next game session. Apparently involves a crashed spaceship full of a lithid. Oh, boy. Fun yeah. for all. We killed his pet lithid, so we got to go get him another one. I'm going to get Spelljammer in this campaign if it kills me. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, this is more sci-fi, I believe, because the, okay. the wrecked ship is all steel. Okay. But anyway... We'll yeah. find out, I guess. Never know. Anybody. On the other hand, Chase is a big Spell Jammer fan, so, you know, maybe I'm just assuming. May I recommend casting Polymorph Other on a party member and changing them into a rust monster? That'll get uh-huh. you through the spaceship. Uh, that's we don't have that's all... powerful. Yeah, we're only fifth and sixth level right now. Oh. Yeah. So. Jimbo. Oh, uh, well, the same basic D&D game that we all play in, which is I'm, I'm enjoying the heck out of. We're finally kind of getting in a groove where we're uh, scaring through the dungeon. Um, last weekend, uh, DM Todd out at Gateway ran us through our third session of Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, and uh, he's he's trying to kill us, and we're playing smart. We're down in level four. We've got a grav sled train with loot on it, and I've got a laser rifle, and mm-hmm. I'm pretty happy. Um, we played uh, our, in our regular Dungeon Crawl Classics campaign last night, and I don't know, how shall I say this? It makes me want to go back to school and finish up my psychology degree so I can understand what happened <laughs> at the table. <laughs> 
we had a, a lemming drove of intentional character suicides down the gullet of a purple worm. And the only thing I can figure is um, my wizard had been kidnapped and was out of the game. And uh, Marcos took my character sheet. And I'm like, oh, crap, I thought I was getting him back. Maybe I'm not. So I had to roll up two level zeros. And they had like six intelligence and just terrible stats and no weapons. So they gave him a couple of battle axes. And I'm like, I'm going to kill these guys as quick as I could. So when the purple worm erupted from the outhouse and ate our cleric whole, I ran my two level zeros up. I was first in initiative order. So I got to run. So I ran him right up there. And, the uh, outhouse. Yes, yes. A purple worm. From the outhouse. <clears throat> I tried up there with that purple worm under the bed at Tedgel Manor. Uh, I'm sure this adventure comes from somewhere, but I don't have any idea what it is. We were, <laughs> were about to enter a mine, and outside the mine was an outhouse, and uh, we had to roll saves to see who couldn't hold it anymore, and the cleric was the first one to miss his, so he went in, and then a purple worm came up to the ground and swallowed him. Don't yeah. you hate it when that happens? <laughs> So I, I think maybe I unintentionally led the party lemming-like to their doom because I came up first <laughs> in initiative order for a change and uh, ran my two characters in to get them killed. And then everybody followed after me, and there were guys leaping in the mob <laughs> and just staying too late, and about, I don't know, a third of the party got wiped out, and that was just the start. Yeah. Wasn't it Men in Black where they said, you know, a person is smart, people are dumb. Yeah, stupid animals. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the reason I I, I, I want to try and study and figure out what happened because I was it, it, that was that was just the start. There was like hey, we you know we we hear cockatrice coming. I mean we hear chickens coming up out of the dungeon. Chicken sounds and a player goes, I bet that's cockatrice. So we know what's coming. And two or three of us are like, okay, well, let's let's we're right at the entrance. Let's pile out, go back to town, get healed up because we've been half killed by this purple worm, and then come back. No, no, no charge ahead. So it was one thing after another, and I'm sitting there looking around the table going, there is no one at this table who couldn't pass the Mensa entrance exam. I mean, everybody here is super smart, high IQ, creative. Why are we playing like this? Because there, that's the difference between intelligence and, and wisdom. Because, yes, I've known quite a few smart people that have no idea what common sense is. I'm not saying your players are or aren't, but from what you're saying, it sounds like that's the case. Or well, they're all I mean, just deciding they want to run new characters. Yeah, maybe everyone was sick of their character. <laughs> uh, I suppose that's a possibility, but I mean, let, don't take my word for it. DM Marcos actually got the phrase out, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> the iconic D or any game master who says that you should rethink whatever you're trying to do. That's, yeah, that's it's just short, short code for, please, God, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you are going to die if you keep doing this. Yep. <clears throat> and, and poor Marcos, his, his, his girlfriend, uh, Catherine, I love her to death, Redhead. She was leading the pack and got one of her characters killed, and I'm like, ooh, it's not going well for you later tonight. <laughs> <laughs> So the other anyway. character dies, you're sleeping on the couch. <laughs> Fortunately, Liz has never done that to me. Yeah, I never have. Even when I've killed her or messed up her characters. Well, it's just a presumption on my part. I they think they could be fine, but uh Well, we have known people who Oh yeah. You know, the wife had said, you know, when her husband was running the game and killed her character, she made him sleep on the couch that night. <laughs> and Mike and I are going, Oh my god Life imitates art or something. 
But now she's seriously pissed off about it. (laughs) It's like, you know, I couldn't imagine doing that. There's so many more important things for you to to save that for. I mean, everybody's relationship is different. If George killed Wheezy's character in a game, she'd probably be thinking (laughs) something else. You know, after he was doing his anti-slavery speeches. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I did did not have the most fun, and it was not our finest hour last night. That's what I've been doing in Jimmy. Oh, Oh, well. Yeah, there's always a game. On the other hand, you'll be telling that story for a while. Oh, yeah, it'll be a good story. Sure. What about you, Glenn? Well, let's start backwards. I just got back from the movies, took my grandsons to see Disney's Planes. Not bad. Uh, Saturday game. Oh, boy. Uh, we ended the campaign, the, base, the basic RC campaign, with killing the killing of Zanzer Tem. Uh, we caught him in a temple trying to turn into a lich. Mm. And he had an anti-magic shell around him. He had an altar in front of him and all that kind of stuff. And Matt Odinus, my DM, said the first thing I did was pull a move that he didn't expect me to be that creative. Um, I took the fighter and dimension door him right on top of the altar in front of Zanzer Tem. Ah. In the anti-magic shell. What? So not in inside the anti-magic shell, just on top of the tem- uh, the altar. No, this was inside the anti-magic shell. Oh, okay. Well, let, let me put it this way. The players started calling it an anti-magic shell. It was a ah. certain amount of energy, so everybody said, oh, anti-magic shell. Ah, okay. Never actually described. Okay. Right. So I, I teleport the player, the fighter player in there, and he misses. Uh-oh. Yeah. The fighter um, missed? Yeah. Fortunately, me, the other elf, and the wizard, uh, three magic missiles, and this guy was toast. Really? Yeah. Wow. We fought okay. his minion black, four black elves longer than we fought him. Yeah. Well, was, I know what that's like. Uh, in, in our when we were playing under our DM, uh, he <laughs> had us pumped in a Ravenloft sometime, and. We were about to get ambushed by an invisible necromancer, and one of our characters just happened to see him. And yeah, he had a ring or something that allowed him to see invisible. Yeah, and we just waylaid him in the first round. We killed him, you know, because we managed to <laughs> like, hey, there's an invisible guy right there, and everyone just went. Well, that's something on him in round. He's toast. Well, you're gonna take a caster down. You better do it quick. Exactly. You know, uh, Eric goes magic missile, and and then Brad goes magic missile, and I go magic missile too. And and Matt's thinking, oh yeah, magic missile, right? An umpteen, you know, a very powerful lich. Well, you know, magic missile thrown from a, an average tenth to thirteenth level characters. If he's a magic user, his hit die are the same as or less than your magic missiles individually. That's about six. Uh, that's that's roughly about, five to seven magic. Missiles per yeah. character. That's like five to seven d six, and five to seven plus one d sixes. Okay, so, so d six. Okay. Yeah, and so it's like, oh yeah, I met what? <laughs> <laughs> you did how many points? He says, yeah, magic missile. You know. <laughs> and then we started our labyrinth lord. He decided to switch to labyrinth lord for the next campaign, okay. and I finally got my gnome. Much to your chagrin. <laughs> Labrador, it's a good set of rules. You're going to enjoy yeah. that. It's not any really big 
deal Oh, I know. That's what we said. But his, his, see, his theory is he wrote that one module for BASIC that we're going to be reviewing in the future. Uh, but he said anything in the future, I'd rather write it for Labyrinth Lord and people extrapolate than have to deal with lawyers or anything that's going to happen about product identity and all that kind of crap. He says, oh, I stick to Labyrinth Lord, I'm okay. So he's going to run Labyrinth Lord. Yep. Um, well, so, the one difference in the Labyrinth Lord rulebook is you can find what you're looking for. More or less. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Uh, so I came up with a gnome, and I, I made him a swamp gnome. A uh, swamp gnome? Well, he's from the swamp. His name is Horace P. Garbin of Souter Swamp. Mama? And I thought, got the house again. I, yeah, I thought he was going to be a backwoods good old boy laid back. And then when I started playing him, all of a sudden he's Ernest T. Bass. <laughs> you know what I mean, Vern? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he, oh, wait. Got, wrong Ernest T. Sorry. Yeah. He, says, he says, in this game, first level uh, mages or mage type characters like elves and gnomes get one spell at first level. And he, and he ruled that your first spell must be read magic. But one of the other characters had a high inch or something like that, so we got a second spell, and he got Magic Missile. And he started talking to him, and he showed him Magic Missile, and and my character, can you teach me that? And he says, yeah, yeah. So he teaches it to him. <laughs> it's like we ran into goblins. He hit that Magic Missile, and he's just like staring at his finger. <laughs> I love this spell. He goes over and hugs him. Thank you. I love this spell. You know. And that's just the way it went for, like, the next hour. Then we had to break it up. I forget so. you're a professional actor sometimes, sir. That was well done. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, but it was, you know, and, and Matt loved the fact that my leather, I can only wear leather armor. My leather armor was like three three gators that my, my pappy made me. Gators? Yeah. <laughs> See this leather armor? He made it out of gators. Yeah. Uh, now you've done it. I got to draw this guy. Yeah, I already drew him. I'll have to send you the picture. Okay. Okay. Well, anyway, that's uh, pretty much me. Okay. Well, you got a little taste of the character funnel this week yourself in the uh, classic. Yes, I did. I was on spell. I was also on Spellburn. They drug me away, kicking and screaming from my uh, tunnels and trolls studies to try out Dungeon Crawl Classics, and I gave it a thumbs up. Really, not a real. Brought Glenn over to use the, the 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 numbers over at Spellburn. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> I, but he I, only suffered thirty percent, thirty three percent loss of his yeah, party. Two, two out of six. Two out of six. Not bad. <laughs> uh, but it's like I gave him the same. You know, the same. It's like it's not. You know, I'm not going to drool over. You know, oh my God, we're going to play Dungeons and Dragons. But I found it pleasant to play. Yeah. But once again, that's, I said I wouldn't run it. I'd have to read it a little more, but, you know, to decide that for sure. But, yeah, I mean, it's certainly something I'd play after yeah. playing it at the time. It was fun. As, as a DM, it all comes down to me is it smacks a little too much of three. Yeah. Yeah, and three is too much work to, to DM. So that's, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. All right. Well, since this is an email show, let's get to some emails. Oh, hell yes. Okay, our first email is from Vile Traveler. Hi, Vile. Time to write the email. (laughs) And he says, what ho, DMs? Old fanzines make me feel all wibbly inside, even if I can only find scans online. Pick up pills for that. (laughs) I got more fun stuff for gaming out of fanzines, page for page, 
than out of any official publications, and that includes X1, The Isle of Dread. I even contributed a bit of art to some back in the day. Looking at them now, I still love the passion and dedication that oozes out of that bad typesetting, courier tin typeface, <laughs> and bags and bags of crunch. But, but <laughs> most importantly, Dean Liz, you produced a Blake 7 fanzine? Holmes, and now Blake 7, is there no end to your good taste? Toodle tip, vile traveler. Well, she married me, but yeah, other than that. <laughs> no, there is no end. There is no end whatsoever. <laughs> you have a traveler. When you're right, you're right. Um, you have, you I did not produce a Blake 7 fanzine. Um, I, I contributed a lot of art and stuff to several, but I, didn't, I never did make my own fanzine. Didn't Peggy run one and... You and Lynn helped with that? Or? Yeah, Peggy, um, our friend Peggy did all kinds of fanzines back in the day. She did uh, Blake 7. She did Stingray. She did, um, um, if, you, if you remember this show that used to be on in the early 80s, there was a made-for-TV movie, and then there was a very brief TV series that came out of that, and it was just called um, The Phoenix, and it had... Um, Oh, what's his head? I'm blanking on the actor, but he played um, Joachim in um, Wrath of Khan. Khan's um, son, the blonde guy, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, he was the main character. He was basically an alien that had been sent to Earth, you know, hundreds of years in the past and had been in some kind of magical suspended animation for all this time. And he gets awakened in the 20th century, and he was supposed to have been on Earth hundreds of years ago, helping mankind. Yeah, it kind of played into the ancient astronauts thing along with... Yeah. Yeah. And there was supposed to be another one. He had a female counterpart, and she was not with him when he awoke. And so he was spending all this time trying to keep out of the hands of the U.S. military and also find his companion, who was supposed to be in a presumably a suspended animation sleep somewhere else. Um, but anyway, it was a very brief show, and I was probably one of the few half-dozen people who actually watched it. But, um, yeah, I did artwork for that fanzine and the Stingray, and she also did fanzines for um, Highlander, the movie and the TV series. Ah. Um, Tell me yeah, the I did all kinds of stuff. Somewhere. Hmm? Tell me some of this stuff is online somewhere. I don't know, really. Um, Internet I, archive, maybe? Maybe. I, I haven't checked to see. I only recall seeing I some of your... not my, my hard copy fanzines from when I was you know, doing it, but I've never checked to see if any of them are online anywhere. Some of your Dallas Brawl stuff I recall seeing under your maiden name. Uh, yeah, I suppose there could be some of the Dallas sprawls scanned in. But I don't recall seeing any of the other stuff. Of course, it's been a couple of years since I've looked, so who knows? Dallas I just Brawls. want to see some of your young, embarrassing art. Woohoo! <laughs> your, your maiden name, so I look for Elizabeth Not Stewart? <laughs> yes, Elizabeth Not Stewart. You'll, you'll find me very easily. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the email, Vile. Thank and you. I know what you mean. Uh, that's one of the reasons I enjoyed. Uh, Dungeoneer so much. I mean, yeah, there were some things... <laughs> I thought you were going to say that's one of the reasons I enjoyed marrying Liz. <laughs> well, was, um, anyway, yeah, there were some things that were really kind of out there, but yeah, they were chock full of creativity. They were. 
They were. So thanks for the email. Okie dokie. Our next email is from David Leavenworth. Hi, Dave. And he writes, after listening to your excellent podcast for the past year, I've just now got caught up on every episode. First, you guys all rock. I hope you can keep up your passion and enthusiasm for years to come. So do we. <laughs> passion. I take, I, I take pills for that, too. <laughs> you guys make a very enjoyable cast of characters, and the topics you pick are endlessly entertaining and enlightening. <laughs> if you can swing it, I look... I very much look forward to John Peterson's second visit. Mm. Next time, let it run three hours. <laughs> oh, okay. I've got dozens of questions, but I'll pace myself and send only a few this time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm attacking the darkness. <laughs> I am completely intrigued by your bumpers. DM Glenn put them all together, right? Oh, yes, they I never did. get old. And I do not have the greatest memory for movie quotes, though, and such, and I would love to learn what they are all from, all of them. If the list is too long, or if you already have a list on the site, I'd be happy with a pointer to said list, preferably unabridged. Oh, boy. <laughs> the annotated Glenn Halstrom bumpers. <laughs> I think some of them. Wasn't the Game On one done by Vince? Yes. Yes, okay. the, the one you said. The one you said last show. We got to get a new one of those. <laughs> well, no, that's fine. It's just you know. Yeah, that, that's a Vince. That's a Vince. I made. I think I made one one time where one of the other ones where he did. I think it was DM Fiat, and I gave it to Vince, and he goes, "Oh, the other one's fine. It's okay, fine. Okay, cool." <laughs> but yeah, Attack the Darkness is from the Dead Alewives Watchtower skit about D&D that originally ran on Dr. Demento. That's right. Um, That's right. It, it's a good one. Yeah, and I think some of our other bumper segments, aren't some of them from, say, the old Dungeons & Dragons TV commercials and yeah, stuff? Well, well that's, that's products of your imagination. That ah, okay. Vince, Vince put that bug in me. He says, here, why don't you go get the... I went on YouTube and found the, the old commercial and I recorded the audio and then I just sort of oh. put it together. Yeah, yeah, some quotes also from Wizards, I think. Yes, that one of which Jim ripped off for his show, but um, that's okay. How dare you rip off a rip off? Uh, you yeah. say rip off, I say homage. <laughs> <laughs> you say, I'll have a latte. Um, <laughs> anyway, next he question. Um, he goes on to say, your most recent North Texas RPG Con report has put me in a dilemma. After 30 years of wishing for it, I was planning to go to Gen Con 2014 for the 40th anniversary of D&D. But I don't want to play 3rd or 4th edition style games. I want old school. And a recent blog post overview of Gen Con's 2013 games made me a little fearful of finding very much old school goodness. Then I heard your NTRPG Con episode, which sounds like it's nothing but old school. And I can't go to both because money. Could you guys tick off a few pros and cons for each to help a newbie decide? Thanks. Holmes forever. DM David. Thank you, David. That's really easy to do. First of all, as far as Gen Con goes, there's no pros. Okay. And the, <laughs> yeah, well, the actually, there's is If you're the going con, to Gen con, con 2014... You're probably going to be chock full of fifth edition stuff rather That's than third or fourth. That's true. Um, 
No. Yeah, I can't really it's say anything. I can't <laughs> really say accident. anything for Gen Con because I've never been either. Neither um, either. I can only I can only tell you about North Texas, which I've enjoyed very much. So you know um, which way we're leaning. I was gonna say, uh, Jen, though, have you been to Gen Con in the past, or will this year be your first year, or what? Oh no, I've been to it many times, including having to work it when I briefly had uh, Game Company and we published Jim Ward's Metamorphosis Alpha. I mean. I, from the point of view of the question, the, the, the games, you can find old edition games there. Um, the, yeah, but is it open gaming or is it stuff that's um, scheduled? Well, at this particular Gen Con that's uh, next week, there's going to be Dungeon Crawl Classics games all over the place. They're in the schedule. I mean, they're all full now, but they they were there. And uh, some Labyrinth Lord and things like that. But the uh, for what it sounds like the uh, – DM Dave wants North Texas RPG Con would be far better because the diff- the big difference from my point of view is forty thousand people versus four hundred people. Uh, I I love Gary Con and North Texas RPG Con because it's just very condensed, very social, amiable, you know, old school gaming. Yeah, that's one of the things that I prefer the smaller conventions too. However, I will say, if you go to a con and you are hoping for a really huge dealer room, North Texas is not going to give you the dealer room experience that Gen Con would give you. So that would be that would be a pro that Gen Con would have over North Texas. But it's still got good dealers. There. It does have good dealers, but you know, Gen Con is going to have bigger a, and you know a thousand percent bigger selection than North Texas would. I don't know if they're still doing it, but I know the Dead Game Society used to do a set of out-of-print role-playing games on Wednesday nights. At uh-huh. I have not heard that they're not doing it. You might want to check their website if you do decide to go ahead and go to Gen Con. Um, but beyond that, yeah, you're probably only going to find in-print stuff going on, yep. at least at official games. Yeah. I go for if I was going to Gen Con, I'd go open gaming all the way in that case. If you want old school. Well, yeah, and I've heard a lot about the dealer rooms. And if you're like the kind who enjoys shopping and impulse buying, that might be good. But today, with Amazon or you know Noble Night Games or the internet, you know, if you're wanting, it, it used to be back in the '80s, you went to cons to find stuff that your local shops just won't carry. That's right. And that's not really the case anymore. So, I mean, unless you just love window shopping and, and you know, point-of-sale purchase sort of yeah. thing. Then Although a lot of companies will deliberately debut stuff at Gen Con and mm-hmm. conventions like that to get people to buy directly from them than, say, from online. It's like, well, you can wait a couple of weeks and get it online, but it's available for the first time at Gen Con right now. Right. And you know what I like about North Texas? And this may go on at Gen Con, I don't know, but what I like it is the haggling aspect. You can really get a deal at, you know, a place like North Texas if you're willing to, like, you know, haggle a little. With Um, every vendor? What? With every vendor? Not every vendor. If they're willing to do it, you do it. Mm. Um, but fortunately, North Texas has uh, quite a good percentage of that. Uh, I've haggled with uh, Bad Mike over stuff before. I got that uh, Tome Horrors Complete for half price. Um, you know, just 
you know, and and you know, as as the the later the con it goes, like say the last day, the more they're willing to come down in price, right? Just, just because they don't want to cart the stuff back. So I think one of one of the things that impressed me about North Texas RPG Con that I was not expecting. I mean, you can go to Gen Con, and if if you get in early enough, you can probably read, find Jeff D somewhere in the schedule and register to play in one of his games. But at North right. Texas RPG Con, we were playing in games. With Errol Otis, with Jeff D, with Michael Curtis, you know, sitting in the same game with with Frank Mincer running it, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's pretty yeah. Cool. That's it, awesome. It's, it's got just enough people that you can always find a game going on, whether it's official or just an open gaming. But it's small enough that you can, you know, still go up and just chat with some of the luminaries of the industry. Yeah, you walk, and walk, in line and all that other stuff. You know, you know, if you meet these guys a couple of years, like you walk up to Jim Moore and say, hey, I want to go get a drink or something like that, or go eat or, or play in his game or he'll play in yours. And they don't care. They just, they're here to have fun too. You know, my whole theory about RPGs anyway, that the reward, the thing you're winning in an RPG is bragging rights. So Liz, how many people out of 7 billion on the planet can hold up their hand and say, I played Bunnies and Burrows with Dr. Dennis Esther with Jeff D and I wore bunny ears. <laughs> You've just Not collected for much. about 12 people. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the Creeks and Crawdads with, uh, with Michael Curtis with the antenna. Yeah, if he if he can find those antenna to wear, I am signing up for that game in a heartbeat. Yeah, this is this is it's probably going to be the loopiest time you had at the table that you'll ever think. If I remember the game game correctly, what a oh what a weird. I don't know if he helped you make your decision, but yeah, <laughs> giving our opinions. I mean that you know you play that game with your tongue so far up in your cheek, you're going to put a hole through it. You know anyway. Thank you, well, thank you, uh, yeah. David. We we hope we were able to help in some way. Um, like I said, you know, I've never been to Gen Con. I can't really give you a whole lot of information about it. But I can tell you that if you want a dealer room experience, Gen Con would be better than North Texas. However, as far as old school gaming, I believe North Texas would be better than Gen Con. Um, so. Sure. Good luck making your decision, and whatever you decide, hope you have a good time next year. If you do come to North Texas, then hopefully we'll see you wander in the wander in the game room. Might even yeah. be in a game together. Who knows? Yep. <laughs> if you see four podcasters at a table ranging in height from about five seven to six eight, that's us. <laughs> yeah, you are short, aren't you, Jim? <laughs> and feisty. Yeah. Anyway. anyway, next email. Okay. Well, our next email is from an an old friend of Mike's and mine, and he has cruelly, cruelly asked me not to read this email online. So I'm going to turn over the email reading reins for this particular one to our co-host, Dean Glenn, who begged to read it. He begged. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> me, me, me. Okay. Now. Hey, podcasters. <laughs> no. First time listener, long time fan. Is that, is that close enough? No, don't do that. I Cut it out, man. All right. <laughs> I frequent drive through RPG. I can't keep this up. 
I frequent drive through RPG often and come across Gygax magazine, which I immediately subscribe to. Upon reading it, I found out about Roll20.net, and at their website was suggested to try out the Save or Die podcast. That's all one sentence, folks. <laughs> I start listening, and I can't shake the feeling I have heard these people somewhere before. <laughs> In your head. Uh I check the Save or Die websites, meet the staff, and what do you know? Mike and Liz are the same Mike and Liz I knew from 20-plus years ago. Very con- Or very convincing alien duplicates. Huh? We are very convincing alien duplicates. <laughs> but don't we are tell not anyone. Okay. I have been enjoying the podcast a bunch. Reminiscing aside, I have a few questions revolving around Game of Thrones and the Birthright world setting. Boy, does he have the wrong show. <laughs> I have been ramping up my group to get them into a homes game and was thrumming through worlds that TSR put out over the years, and the group did not find an agreeable world until I found my old Birthright set. Once I explained the basic idea, someone instantly blurted out, Like Game of Thrones! I love that show! As it turns out, everyone loved that show! Sadly, no one read the books. I recommend them if you haven't read them already. I enjoyed Game of Thrones as well as Frank Herbert's Dune, another great political fantasy. Unfortunately, I am a fun DM, and by that I mean I am a funny DM. I always make sure everyone is getting a laugh and a fight, and thus my DM style is a lot like stand-up routine during a bar brawl. For example, if a player tells me I love that Chris Nolan Batman, odds are I'll tell a story like Adam West Batman. Now, I think about it more like Daffy Duck's Bat Duck. Actually, that was Plucky Duck, but I digress. Granted, yes, it was Tiny Toons. <laughs> um, granted, I would try, even if there was no try. What? Frelling <laughs> Yoda. Frelling, I don't want to know about that. Uh, I would, I would, granted, I would try, even if there is no try, Frelling Yoda, and struggle through and play off the seriousness of Game of Thrones, but I just have the terrible feeling it would end up a lot like Game of Muppets coming soon to the Disney Channel. Political- I would watch. Yeah, now there is an idea. Political satire can be fun, as most politicians have proven, but I don't want to cut my players short of a serious political drama just because I just thought it would be funny. If there was a pie fight in Ned Stark's beha- at Ned Stark's beheading. Yorch, I can hear the booze already. Also, I had some general thoughts on adapting Birthright back into basic, but once I started comparing, I reconsidered to use the companion rules to tell a primary story I know in episode 77 you talked about mass combat, which... Yeah, that was help. my fault because I was talking to him on Facebook and I had mentioned that episode 77 was going to be our mass combat episode uh-huh. and it was actually 76. Yeah, so. I was, I was going to say, aren't we doing 77 yeah. right now? So, yeah, that was my fault. <laughs> okay. That Okay, rewind. I know in episode 76, you talked about mass combat, which will help out with the big fights. But have you talked about jousting or dueling? Something that would help handle that one-on-one Luke versus Vader moment and keep it interesting for the rest of the players. I was thinking there were jousting and tournament rules in one of the modules, but I don't remember which one. Oh, my brain. Sorry, that was me. (laughs) So here are my questions. Oh, wait, those weren't the questions. Those weren't the questions, no. This is the lead-up to the questions. If your DM style is not conductive to the world, or if the world isn't pulling you in well enough to improvise, do you give in and just sludge through the game or simply change the world to work for you? Okay, let's stop and answer these as we go. Go ahead. Go ahead. Change the world. Because as DM, if you're not having a good time, nobody's going to have a good time. That's right. Yeah. On the other hand, if 
the world that you don't like is the one that the players really, really want. If you change it, aren't they going to be unhappy anyway? That's right. So it seems like it would be a catch-22 situation. Um, That's the point you let somebody else do. <laughs> That's an interesting solution. You could, you could do round-robin where people take turns and you play you know, one game system one sure. time and the next week you play top secret or something. Yeah. So everybody gets what they want. Yeah. More? You want- no, I was going to say, if it was me, yes. probably what I would... I would try to change the world, but I would try to change it as little as possible if I knew specifically what aspects of that game world the players were the most interested in. I would try to leave that one alone, but maybe some of the other aspects that, you know, didn't catch their attention so much, you know, maybe I could fool around with them. I don't think that's what this guy's talking about, because he's talking about Game of Muppets. That's what he wants to run, and yeah. uh, and they want Game of Thrones. So if, like, if, if, if as a judge or a player, your idea of fun is a gonzo game, and somebody wants to run heavy, you know, political intrigue, that's just a clash. That's never going to work. Hmm. I suppose you could maybe have a little bit of gonzo just here and there. Maybe. You're so nice. Well, I mean... You you could you could try to you know sneak in some some goofy bits, but so, yeah, you'd have, always, to, you'd have to be careful not to yeah, not always, to just go overboard with the stuff that you liked better. Well, you you always have to have a little comic relief in there anyway. Not so much Jar Jar, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next question. We ready? If you were to run a political drama type of game, would you go like Crazy Dave Arneson and plan out some elaborate convention game with 20-plus players in different locations and mastermind the entire event, or play with a normal group, four to six, in a troop style, a la Vampire the Masquerade, so the players can get a, a story of each of the fractions, or just go small and have the player make one faction and the NPC the rest of the story? Or maybe you have a totally different idea. Anybody? I wouldn't do any of that. What would you do? Instead of all that? Well, yeah. If you were going to run a political drama type of game, how would you go about setting it up? I should recuse myself from answering because I'm just not interested in that type of game. That'll make two of us. Mike? I would go more for the uh, players being either a troop together or being just this formation of a faction and run the others as NPCs. I oh, see you make a good point. I should I yeah. should have talked I should have said something about that because uh, part of why I'm not into political drama type games is I I'm, I'm not into player versus player role playing games. Uh, that 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 never works out well. Mm. True. I I would not do an Arnesonian 20 person thing oh, for That that just seems like an awful lot of work and headache <laughs> for the DM, which I am all about avoiding whenever possible. So, yeah, the, I, would, I would be more likely to do the, the troop style, such as Vampire, um, yeah. and, you know, have the, have the players be together and the NPCs are the ones that they're trying to deal with 
and either make alliances or double cross or what have you. Right. You got it. All right. Number three. If you had any opinion, do you? If you had any opinions on birthright versus the master or companion set for this particular project? Oh, isn't birthright a two E product? It is. Well, yeah, but he was talking about wanting to convert it for. Well, yeah, I know, but I'm. I, if I can finish, I was. Yeah, sorry. To, since it's a two E product, I suspect that Glenn may be the only one with any experience with birthright. Um, and I'll have to say no, because we actually had to bring Crispy on because he was the only one with experience at Birthright on my show. <laughs> because the, the, all three of us go, hmm. <laughs> well, do you remember what Crispy said about Birthright? As far he, as- loves it. he loves it. It's kind of a uh, Game of Thrones meets Highlander. Hmm. Well, it sounds like then... You know, it might be. It's a high-level political intrigue where you're not fighting bugbears. You're fighting, like, mm-hmm. you know, the the master assassin or something that's got to get the king or something like that. It's like an indie RPG called Houses of the Blooded. I guess. Which, uh, yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. the political infighting and social issue, you know, social status was more important than killing the bugbears. Right. Right. So... Um, but yeah, I don't see why you can't use the companion rules to cover everything like that. You may just take the, again, I'm just making the comment because I've never looked at Birthright, but I don't see why you couldn't just take the Birthright setting but use the companion rules. Right. And number four, if you had any ideas on playing out a dueling situation in D&D outside of the standard combat to make it more cavalier while still keeping with the drama... Well, for pure jousting, chainmail works really good. That's yeah. Fair. Except it doesn't really take into account levels and magic items, though. Yeah. Wasn't the issue seventeen of Dragon Magazine had an article where they created a system that was sort of like the chainmail one, mm-hmm. but they allowed each jouster to choose a particular attack or defense mode. Mm-hmm. And uh, do comparisons, which would modify the final D20 rolls to see what happens. It's a little chart-heavy, but it reminds me sort of the combat system from an Avalon Hill board game called Magic Realm. Yeah. That I used to play back in the day. And didn't Master Beckme Master have the jousting rules in him? I never looked. I have never looked at the. I know they're in one of the sets. At the risk of being a serial contrarian, um, if. The idea is to have an epic duel between two characters. Why wouldn't you just use the straight rules? Yeah. Probably he may be worried because, especially if it's mid to high level characters, it will devolve into hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, hit, miss, miss, hit, hit, you know, until somebody runs out of hit points. Right. Hmm. And I think he, and I'm just guessing here and knowing Corbett. Pasta Man. Yeah. Um, he's wanting something a bit more varied and exciting. Probably something closer to Champions Combat than. Oh, you want something yeah. exciting? Go over to. Yeah, which is why I would, I would not suggest using the chainmail jousting rules because they're kind of bleh. Yeah. <laughs> and if you really want to get intricate, go over to Two E and look up, look at weapons and t- the uh, DM's option weapons and tactics. For ja- for like dueling rules, it's like you're in an Arthur Murray school. They, it's like they put the 
the you know the the stuff on the floor and you're supposed to follow it with your feet that's what it looked like on there with the diagram okay he steps here you faint over here he steps over here and you roll over here see if you do that it's like guys just fight yeah well i mean it it's there's a lot of systems that get more like that but by definition it becomes more complicated true uh, unnecessarily, the in my system opinion. system from Dragon 17 seems to look like it's basically a one-roll result. That's good. Uh, at least for the jousting part, obviously. You could probably modify it to dueling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what, Corbett? Since we, we're talking around this, where there's no one piece <clears throat> we can come up with that answers all your questions, Corbett, you should write your own system. And come, That's right. Because it sounds like there's a hole here that needs to be filled. With yeah. your house rules, yes. Your house even rules even make it labyrinth lord compatible or something and put it out there for people. That's right. I'm sure it'll get used. And then we can rate it on our show. <laughs> and review it, yes. I mean, that's a pretty good elevator speech. It's just it's for D&D, and it's just like Game of Thrones. Yeah. Although, let me hop in here a second. I know a lot of people have asked us to review a lot of the modern OSR stuff, and I'd just like to say to everybody, we'd love to. But we can't afford to get all this stuff. So basically, if somebody sends us a product, we can review it. But if they don't, we can't. So if you want a particular product reviewed, bug the publisher into sending us a copy and we'll cover it if it's, you know, classic. Oh, you mean there's no room for PDFs at drivethroughrpg.com in our production budget? No, no, right now. We have no production budget. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot. We can't even buy a soda with our production budget. That's right. But anyway. <laughs> now we're panhandling. Okay, um, so <laughs> he, he he closes with, finally, if you do read on, this, on the podcast, please don't make Liz read it. Too late. Rip my head off. It's Liz. I'm reading it. Let's see who Glenn really is. It was an alien. <laughs> I would have gotten away, away with this email if it weren't for these two <laughs> podcasters. podcasters. I know it is her one job, but she is just repeating what the gosh darn computer says. Never give up. Never surrender. Thank you for that Galaxy Quest quote. By, by Grapnar's hammer, I'm thank you. <laughs> Sons of War van, yes. Anyway, what a saving. That's Corbett. <laughs> Corbett. Well, thanks. thank you, Corbett. Been a while. Yeah, yeah. He he's a little can be a bit goofy at times. I mean, he he was the one that created the Pasta Man super outfit to wear at a costume party in the late eighties with a big P on the front, and then we heard later he wore it to school. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> he is Pasta Man. He is Pasta Man, defender of Italian and Greek food everywhere. And Chinese. Which I think is a noble calling. Mm-hmm. Unless he's defending it for me, in which case, yeah, get out of the Well, if you, if, you add, if you add a packet of chicken seasoning, you have a ramen man. Mm-hmm. Anyway, do we have another one? Yes. Our next email is also from Corbett. But he doesn't say that I can't read this one. So. At the end, you'll rip your head off. No, it's <laughs> No, it's Jim. <laughs> We're going to keep guessing on this show. So our next email from Corbett says, Hey again, 
just adding a follow-up question concerning Game of Thrones that isn't discussed heavily in the HBO series. In the Game of Thrones book series, they spend a good amount of time talking about the importance of Valyrian steel blades. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not because I have not watched the show. You are throneless. I am throneless, yes. And how only a few of the families have even one except the Lannisters. They are described as fantastic swords, but not magical in nature. I remember the Conan books often talked of Atlantean steel and how special it was, yet in Cull, almost everyone had Atlantean weapons. So Sounds I, like uh, elven chainmail. Yeah. So I guess if everyone is super, no one is. <laughs> I know there is a historical account of Damascus steel, the Viking Ulfbert swords, and what Japanese that? Koto blades. In AD&D, Oriental Adventures had ancestral weapons, which was considered to be a highly valuable weapon, but for game terms usually meant the weapon was just plus one. The magic bonus seemed like a cop-out, but I was a little uncertain how to make special steel special. Does basic expert have weapons or armor made of special steel? Have you ever used special steel in a game or campaign? If you did, how did you make it special without making it magical? Thanks for the thoughts, Corbett. Well, I had disposable aluminum blades. Well, you've got two options there. <laughs> One is to give the blade a history, a storied history, so that it, it's a legendary blade, and that makes mm -hmm. it special. And the other is to have it be cash valuable. Like, it's not a plus-one sword, but it is worth 500 gold pieces or 5,000 gold pieces or whatever. Mm -hmm. But why would you want to keep and use that sword if it's so valuable as opposed to a regular sword that if it got, you know, messed up in battle, it wouldn't be that big a deal as opposed to, oh, my God, this 5,000 gold piece sword has just been ruined. Well, they both do the same damage. I disagree with Corbett's basic premise. It's fine, in, and, and I've seen Tim Kask and other people do this in the old school. It's fine to have a non-magical blade that's plus one because it's so well-crafted, or plus two or whatever. That's what I used to do, since it always struck me as a magic weapon that's only a, a magic sword, only plus one is kind of, meh, you know, not a huge deal. And I think that's what Corbett was inferring to, which is ah. why... I used to do it where plus one, it really isn't magic. It's just very nice steel. So those plus one blades, say if you were fighting a creature that's only hit by a magical weapon, it would not do damage because it's not really magical. Back in the day when I did that, no, I would still allow it mm. because I always interpreted the mag only hit by magical weapons is it's just particularly resilient against normal weapons. That's how, how I always interpret it. Nowadays, what I'd probably do is make it, okay, your sword isn't magical, but it's vorpal or a, or a sword of sharpness, and that would be the reflection of how awesome it is. Okay. But anyway. So in that instance, would it be a plus one both to hit and to damage or okay. just plus one only to damage? No pluses, period. It would just be a vorpal or a sharpness. That is a roll of 20. You cut off, you know, dis decapitate or dismember. 
Hmm. And that is what makes it such an awesome weapon. But it okay. has some actual pluses on its own because it's not magical. So the, the nat 20 roll wouldn't be, you know, double damage or anything like that. You just roll randomly to see if something got lopped off. Correct. Hmm. Just like you would with any Vorpolar sort of sharpness. You know, at the, risk of, you... Hmm? at the risk of invoking the dreaded weapon proficiency, that's another way you could make a non-magical sword special, is if it's an ancestral weapon or a culturally specific weapon, you've been trained to use it, so it's plus one for you. Nobody else can pick it up and get the plus one, because you, you have to know how to use a katana. Yeah. That's a, you can handle it that way, yeah. Well, I suppose if it had a just a really unusual balance or something to it so that it feels yeah, virtually nothing like that, any other sword, you'd have to have a chance you'd have to have that, time to get used to using it. Yeah, that was where I was gonna go with that. I was going my my initial reaction was, well then why couldn't you get a plus one with any katana, for example? But or, yeah. or you could just remember you're playing a medieval fantasy game and give them magic swords and quit worrying about it. There's that too. Wow. Well, if you want to be a killjoy, that Why, <laughs> that comment was positively Vincian. <laughs> Not Vincian, Vincian. Yeah, I'm still a little grumpy from last night. <laughs> Hi, I'm Liz. You know, they should come out with a whole section of, of spells for D&D where you can just disbelieve anything if you don't think it's possible. We'll call it Vincian magic. <laughs> it's stupid. <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah. It won't work if he doesn't believe it. Okay. Well, hope we've helped, Corbett. Thank you, Corbett. <laughs> okay. And I won't say I'm sorry for reading your second email, because I'm not. <laughs> and just for reference, I still have that Starbucks jacket I wore at that costume party back in 88. Still fits, too. <laughs> hey, you're doing all right. Yeah. Okie dokie. Our next email is from Jim Yoder. And Jim just wants to say, hey guys, are you going to Gen Con this year? I'll be there Saturday and Sunday and would really like to meet you guys. Jim will be, Jim. Yeah, take care. Hope to see you guys there. Jim. (laughs) Yeah, I'm afraid Jim is the only one of us who's going to make it to Gen Con. So you might be able to run into him, but... Jim, meet Jim. (laughs) I'm going to the show. I will not be far from the Dungeon Crawl Classics guys, and I will most commonly be found outside smoking next to Michael Curtis and Tim Cask. Ah, okay. Yes, find the smoking area. You're bound to find him and Tim Cask sooner or later. <laughs> sooner or later. So, anyway, if you want to catch the rest of us, you're going to have to probably try to get to a North Texas RPG con. In June. That would be your best chance of, of meeting all all four of us together. Afraid so. Okie dokie. And our next one is from Montana Squires. Montana Cole Squires, the man who throws guns. Yes. Hello. Yes. The gunslinger. <laughs> the gunslinger, literally. And Montana writes, Dinosaurs are something that appear in almost every monster manual throughout D&D. So you guys have to have used them at some point. Well, I don't know about use them, but I'm <laughs> mercy of them. For <laughs> You're definitely contending with them. Yes. Well, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which well, dinosaurs have you guys used? How did you use them? 
And was it awesome? Well, I've used T-Rex before, but it takes a while to train them to roll the dice. Yeah, they got those teeny tiny little hands. And a great big head. I don't think you thought this out very well. I'm sorry. (laughs) Meet the Robinson, sorry. See, I'm... I'm, But a teeny tiny brain. brain. That's actually number three in Jim Ward's How to Write Good Adventures top five list is number three is put in a (laughs) T-Rex. Really? Yep. I thought everything was better with monkeys and giant robots. Well, that's six and seven. Ah, okay. And if you can make it a robotic T-Rex, then you've kind of got Mecha Godzilla, and that just makes it awesome all by itself. Pirates and monkeys, and make it monkey pirates. That's Ready Player One awesome. That would be uh, Pirate 101, actually. Anyway, um, no, I've never used dinosaurs, to tell you the truth. I have very rarely, because I, and this is ver- not very old school of me at all, Mm-hmm. But I kind of want there to be a vague rationale for why this dinosaur would suddenly be here. So since I've never done a Lost World type setting, you know, like what we're going through now in our uh-huh. TV game, I, I just I've never just kind of plopped a dinosaur down in the middle of a campaign because. I can't make it make sense, and it, I know it doesn't have to make sense to be old school, but I, I'm, I guess I'm anti-dinosaur. I don't know, but yeah. Well, you got your tropical island setting, Lost World, like you said. You got your high-level magic user who's researching uh, time travel spells, who's caught one from the past. You can do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, what's the name of that one that flies? The pterodactyl. Pterodactyl. There. Yeah, I'd love to do like Isle of Dread with a with a, a creepy old wizard like that in a wheelchair and this purple pterodactyl <laughs> in a cave where they see the Avengers kill Dudu kill. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I'm kind of like Liz. I mean, unless it's specifically in the module like Hex One, um, I've never been a big user of dinosaurs. Um, I don't know why. Just Hasn't ever really grabbed me. I guess it because I always have that high medieval feel to my D and D. It just dinosaurs just seem weird. Well, more people should. I know saying that, but a wyvern's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But there you go. Yeah, it's hard to stand on that ground in a system that has pterodons. Yep. Yep. Or pter. Not the flying. Not the flying dinosaur. The thing with the deer antlers. Or a minotaur lizard. (laughs) Oh, yeah. <laughs> that has a percent yeah. of lying. Percent in liar. Percent liar. You, you and just hide the trees. lizards. Yeah. Yeah. If he put frickin' lizard hiding up in the tree we're walking under and attack. It, yeah. It was Corey go off about the, the picture of the, with the Drew, the Drew with six fingers. So, <laughs> anyway. No, no, you, you make a good point, Mike. If, you're, if it's more yeah. traditional medieval fantasy, you want to be a token X. That's one thing. If you like your game a little more gonzo, that's another thing. I yeah. find them. I think. Yeah, I find them more for. I mean, you can do the, the traditional. I wouldn't use them, but I find them more for like a change of pace thing. You know, having your characters go up and find a, lo- a small lost world or a valley or something, and have them run around. You know, for and like a, a session or two, and you know. And that's essentially what we've run into in our two E game is you know this isolated island, which actually we found out isn't actually an isolated area. Going through the mountains to get to the valley actually puts us back in time. Ah. So we're we're actually so the only way to get back is to go through the mountains because we go over it. We're just right. on on the Faerun in you know one billion BC or whatever. Right. They are very good for uh, 
uh, you know, uh, skewing player expectations. If you've got, you know, players like us who know every monster in the monster manual, well, you're on the beach and here come a bunch of flying reptiles and you're not sure if they're dragons, wyverns, or pterodactyls. Yeah. And here comes the botularium. Uh, anyway, sorry, Montana. <laughs> At least we were more help there. What Our it, next email is from Rust. Hey, Rust. Hey, yeah. Rust. Rust writes, greetings, Saber Diecast. Rust writes. <laughs> Last time I wrote, I mentioned that the re-release of the Dungeons & Dragons games were Chronicles of Mistara and Tower of Doom. This was wrong. The game released was Chronicle of was that the game released was Chronicles of Mistara. It combines Tower of Doom and Shadow over Mistara. Not sure how I messed that up. Rust. Well, thank you, Rust, for clearing that up for us. Try not to let it happen again. Yeah. <laughs> we'll let you off with a warning this time. Yeah, watch it. <laughs> or we'll have Jim come over and smoke in your face. With his little tiny cigars. Oh, no more, dude. I quit. Well, we'll Are you get still you... doing the E, the I'm, e I'm thing? A, I'm on the electronic cigar now. It's all uh, little electronic cigars. Well, in that case, well, you'll take off your shoes and stick your stinky socks in front of his face. How about that? I think I could do that. And still look cool. <laughs> yes. How he's... about just a nice, juicy, endless character story? Oh, he'd love it. That's better than sneaky socks any day. Yeah. True. And you can have Carl Castle leave a message on your voicemail system. <laughs> so, yeah. our next email is from Chris Modek Halverson. Hey, Chris. Hi. And Chris writes Hello, gang, and greetings from the soon to be frozen Northland of Duluth, Minnesota. I am a long-time listener of the show, although this is the first time I have felt compelled to write in. Compelled as such because your last two episodes, numbers 75 and 74 respectively, are among the best shows, in my opinion, you have ever produced. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I won't belabor the point. Many have already told you the same, but exemplary work, folks. I never get tired of hearing it. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. I would be remiss if I didn't, however, posit a question which draws from both of the aforementioned episodes. Uh, Time to go. (laughs) Got to remember what we covered now. As I begin preparing for an OD&D with supplements campaign for the fall, I suddenly had what I can only assume is not an original idea, but perhaps one which has not been mentioned on your show before. Pretend it's 1974. I do that every day. <laughs> you begin a campaign with the three original books. I can't. I'm five. Then, over the course of a few sessions, you add in a supplement or two. You leave them in the closet. They reproduce. What can I say? Then, a few sessions later, begin introducing issues of the Strategic Review and or other fanzines of the era. That rag? And then issues of the Dragon. Okay. Releasing them to the players albeit in a much more time-compressed fashion, as they would have hit the newsstands back in the day. One could easily bring out the materials every two to three sessions and span the time between 1974 and 1979, when the first edition AD&D Monster Manual appeared fairly quickly. How would this change the game? 
as I see the fandom phenomenon which spawned the vast amount of editions and errata, which culminated in the three core books of first edition, being analogous to the, gasp, pretend I didn't mention this, current D&D next playtest materials being distributed by Watsi. Could this time machine approach to classic D&D provide the ultimate in-house ruling or player-driven rule changes and additions? Who says the forgotten witch class from the dragon number five needs to stay forgotten? <laughs> Granted, you could just add the witch as a PC without going through all the trouble of jumping in the time machine and waiting the several weeks before dragon number five is, quote, released, end quote. But in the spirit of the experiment, it might be worthwhile to see if other accepted or discarded rules, classes at all, might make other changes sources of imbalance in the game itself. Okay, I've taken up enough of your time. Thanks again for the wonderful show. Chris Modek Halverson, DM True Bardor. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. I... Go there's ahead. a group there's a group here in uh, Cincinnati that's done it almost precisely what uh that gentleman wrote about. They're called the Retro D and D League. Uh it's a group of players ranging in age from fourteen to up in the forties and they started with chainmail and uh wow. I didn't I thought it was a casual thing until I, I got to know more about it. I thought they, their, their goal was to play every edition of the game in every campaign setting ever in one continuous campaign. But it's literally a continuous campaign. So when they started with Chainmail and OD&D, somewhere they were approached by some extra-dimensional being that gave them the challenge to go get the rod of seven parts and the ability to travel to alternate prime material planes. So literally those characters started out in the three supplements and then, the, and then mechanically they had a gray hawk and there was some, as, as they go from dimension to dimension, there's some adjustment to hit points and armor class and things that have to happen to play in that setting. And they're sweeping through everything. Wow. You know where they're at now? Oh, they just told me the other day and I forgot. Um, it's uh, Ravenloft, I think. Okay. They either just finished up Ravenloft and we're going to Spelljammer or something like that. Oh, that's impressive. Um, it sounds like it would be fun. I don't see why it wouldn't work. Obviously, it's working for the Retro D&D League. Um, the only thing I could think of is, as a player, if I started with a character class, say, you know, I wanted to play a witch, but I ended up getting a magic user, then when the witch was introduced, quote-unquote, later in the game, would I have the opportunity to move my character over, kill my old character, and start a new one? Or, what? you know, otherwise, some people might go, well, what's the point of having all these new classes if I can't run a character until my old one dies? True. But that's a minor argument, you know. I think it would depend on how you introduced them. Say you introduce the witch, and you first, the players first see the witch-type character as an NPC, and it's something brand new in that campaign world. Um, they've, it's only just been, you know, this type of study has only just been created right now, and the players are having to deal with this new type of spellcaster suddenly becoming more and more common and either as an enemy that you have to fight or a faction that you have to try to win over to keep the peace in the realm. And as that goes on, if one of the players, you know, then their character dies, at that point, because 
the witch is now established in the realm, if they wanted their new character to be one, then they could. Yeah. Works for me. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's what, uh, on the other podcast, somebody wrote in and asked what were the hallmarks of old school gaming, and I just thought of one that we didn't talk about, and that's the sort of uh, on-your-feet, on seat-of-your-pants role-playing where you make up the story on the spot to explain an old-school game mechanic, like exactly like what you just did, and that's awesome. You know, when your character dies and your next character is his cousin who's on a quest to get his stuff back. back yeah. Like, <laughs> like. Okay. okay, well, uh, if you run the game, Chris, write in, let us know. Yeah, uh, sure. Thanks for, thanks for writing. Our next email is from Frank Williams. Hi, Frank. Frank says, I wanted to add some info from someone that likes to mix wargaming with role-playing, despite never being a true wargamer, after listening to episode 76. My first experience with mass combat in D&D goes back to 1985. I was playing in a campaign that culminated in a war scenario. Three of the PCs were given command of armies, and we marched off to repel the or-control invaders. The DM used his own system. He basically just asked us to give our troops orders, and he rolled some dice and then described the results of those orders. So this was much more a role-playing solution than using a war game system. Shortly after that, I got the battle system rules that I used with another group. We had a lot of fun running those big battles with PCs as commanders or <coughs> artillery pieces, i.e. the magic users. The AD&D module Bloodstone Pass, H1, was built as a battle system module, and it's very fun. I would recommend it if you ever wish to try out the battle system rules. One caveat with battle system is that it works very well if the number of troops are in the hundreds, but can get to be a pain in the ass if the number of troops goes into the thousands. My experience was with the 1E battle system, but the 2E rules look like an improvement. A new mass combat option to get the PCs involved is the Domains of War supplement for the ACKS system. Ah. There is a free preview, which is all I have, of it on drivethroughrpg.com. Basically, how the PCs get involved, as far as I can remember, since it has been a while since I looked at this document, is that they can risk a certain amount of force strength to undertake a mission for their army. If they succeed, the enemy is weakened, and if they fail, their forces are weakened. I haven't used these rules yet, but they look interesting. Another option for high-level PCs going against masses of low-level minions would be from the AD&D module WGS1, 5 shall be 1. Basically, the masses are broken down into groups of, I believe, 20 with each group being an encounter strength of one. So, for example, a group of 100 orcs would have an ES of five. Every 50 hit points of damage done reduces the ES of the opponents by one. It assumes some will be killed and some will run off. And something like a fireball also reduces the ES by one. Each round, the PCs get attacked by four different members of the opposing force. D&D Next is supposed to have a mass combat optional module as well. I look forward to see what that is like. Just thought I would share a couple of additional options out there for running larger battles in D&D. Frank, a.k.a. 
SJW70. Woo-hoo. Thank you, Frank. Thanks, Frank. Uh, yeah, I mean, virtually all fantasy role-playing games that have come out have tried to, to deal with the mass combat problem, you know, in one way or the other. At the, the and all the war, and all the war that actually works for you. And all the war gamer grognards laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know there is one that uh, Casey Christofferson, I believe, did for Castles and Crusades, um, hit a mass combat system. Um, which I've been meaning to look at for ages, but um, I've heard some people say it's pretty good, but naturally I personally can't say. uh, I think it's mostly just miniature rules, though. It's it's sort of like Warhammer Fantasy or, you know, that sort of thing. Although it may have an option for putting PCs into it, I don't know. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's options, and who knows, maybe the D&D Next will have a decent mass combat system. All I need to know is where you want the fireball. (laughs) Yep, pretty much. Where is everything, where is the enemy the thickest? That's where I want the fireball. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Although pointing out about battle system after armies in the hundreds starts to get painful. I mean, putting my historian hat on, for most of the Middle Ages, most armies in Western Europe really were only in the hundreds. You know, a couple of thousand was considered a massive army in the day. Um, but yeah, and that's interesting. So, like in in Lord of the Rings, that that it truly is a fantasy army that size. Yeah. Well, of course, and there's also the problem of ancient historians were really more storytellers. So you frequently run into, and the enemy host was a million strong, and it's like, no, they weren't. No, they weren't. You know, medieval. There weren't that many people living in the country. Yeah, yeah. Western Europe until like I think it was the 16th or 17th century. The largest city in Western Europe was only 19,000 people. You cannot keep an army of a million men in the field. But it sounds better when you're you know telling the, the story of a great victory. Right. So you're saying the army in the two towers on the was kind of an exaggeration. Generally, yeah. yeah. Most fantasy okay. novels. Because, well, partially they're writing for modern readers. And right. to a modern reader, you know, a great army of 2,000 men, they're going to go, that's not great. That's whoa. Well, you know, they read about 80,000 men hitting the beaches at Normandy, and that 2,000 looks... I mean, I'm no historian, but without roads and internal combustion engine or railroads, you can't feed that many people in one no. spot. That's no. true. That, and, yeah, that's what it gets to the logistics. You've got to... I mean, even the Romans, who were masters of ancient logistics, rarely could put together four or five legions True. Um, at once, and that and a legion was about a thousand. You know, so, but no. So anyway, that off. Thanks Thank for the email, though. Give us something to think about. All righty. Our next email is from Joe Solarte. Hey Joe. Joe. Hey Joe. Hey Joe. Where are you going with that gun in your hand? Yeah, you beat me to it. <laughs> hey guys, long time listener, have largely caught up on all of your other podcasts. Good. While I have not played D&D Basic Slash Expert in a long, long time, I still have a special place in my heart for it, and thus for your podcast. Great show, keep up the great work. 
While most of my campaigns were in first edition for the late 80s and early 90s, went to second edition later in the decade, and now are using D20, but mass combat is something that has come up a lot, as many of my campaigns tend to be epic in nature and thus require massive clashes of good versus evil and such. A method I developed is one that DM Liz brought up during the show. I call it the Pirate's Gold Method, which I largely derived from the classic PC NES game of the same name. Mm. I don't know if you remember that game or not, but there are several times where in boarding actions during ship-to-ship engagements or when trying to take a town, while the game takes into consideration things you have done to set up the engagement, i.e. tactics, shelling the town, other things, it ultimately is decided with a one-on-one duel between yourself and a single enemy commander or boss type in the game. Even though it takes into consideration how the battle is going, it is possible through superior swordsmanship in that game to overcome bad tactics and overwhelming numbers if you defeat this enemy commander. I like that. I more or less borrow the same principle for my D&D campaigns. While I am also an avid fan of Warhammer Fantasy and can easily substitute out Warhammer units into D&D units if I needed to, it is far easier when there is mass combat to ensure that the PCs are either individually matched up against an opposing enemy of some kind that is their opponent for that battle or to have a group of PCs going up against a single really powerful enemy and more or less based the battle of this duel between the PCs and the enemy NPC monster that I have put them up against. I think it works very well. I would sort of give it the same credibility that many Hollywood-type movies have, where you have this huge fight going on involving hundreds on either side fighting it out, but you still have in the center of the field, oblivious to all this, Batman versus Bane or something like that. It works on that principle. Thank you for your good work. DM Joe. Thank you, Joe. Brown sounds very cinematic. Yeah, I like it. And while I I never played the game he's referring to, there was an earlier game on the Commodore 64 called Defender of the Crown. Oh, I remember that game. Yeah, which worked on much the same principle when you were going to rescue the princess from the tower. Yes. Um, in the end, you know, it was really your abilities with the joystick running your guy against one of the guards that really decided success or failure. So, yeah. Uh, I like the idea of, of, I like to break it down to something a little more personal than to have the mass battle, because that can just get to be tedious, rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling at least in my own personal experience. Yeah, if you don't have a war gamer bent to you, that that can get pretty old. Yeah. I think it's a that's true, but I think it's about more than how much of a war gamer bent you have. It's about collaborative storytelling. I mean, the DM Joe's answer ticks off all the necessary requirements for my kind of uh role-playing game in a way that Corbett's solution didn't because I don't really, you know, there's nothing heroic about the story. In the, the story being told in Game of Thrones in a lot of ways. I was about to say, have you read Game of Thrones? Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, right, right. It's, it's, so, I mean, but what he's talking about is, is, is mythic storytelling, how to engineer that into your game, which is why we have movies and stories where it boils down to Batman versus Bane in the middle of, you know, everybody else exploding in a mass combat. Or Conan 
standing against eight billion bad guys and mowing them all down. Yeah. So, well conceived. <laughs> okay. Thanks for the info, Joe. Our next email is from Michael Fiorentino. And Michael writes, Dear Sodcasters, I really liked Adventure number 76. I think that large-scale battles are often overlooked by DMs because of the inherent difficulties in running them. Yep. Back in the day, I was a big fan of Battle System. Got a lot of, you know, shout-outs for Battle System going on here. Yeah. <laughs> Though I did tweak it a bit. Several years ago, I ran a short conflict using those same rules. We had a lot of fun doing so, and in the end, I taught several people how to war game, at least the battle system way. I was very pleased by your take on the subject, and thank you for providing us with a fresh outlook on it. I think many of the features of play at name level, such as domain management, war, and politics, are glossed over by some, but I think this is the best part of D&D's endgame. Thanks again for your fantastic podcast, and as always, we look forward to listening to adventure number 100, and 101, 102, etc. Sincerely yours, Michael Fiorentino, Rebecca Fiorentino, Scott Almond, etc., the Trailblades Adventurers Guild. That sounds fun. Cool. Thank you, Michael and Rebecca and Scott and Skippy, um, etc. <laughs> Thank you, etc. The- Thank you, Professor and Marianne. <laughs> we should totally do something crazy for episode 100, like fly into the same city and record it on Gary Gygax's front porch or something. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Except we need to have that podcasting production. You convince Gail not to chase us off with a shotgun or something. <laughs> see, that's it's the... for the podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, we'll get uh, Vince or somebody to distract her for now, you know, two hours. You know, if if it falls, I always kind of almost wish it falls then. But if number one hundred fell on NTRPGCon, that would be the live show to do. Mm-hmm. Number one hundred. We've done twenty five in the past uh, year, so it's entirely possible it could get close there anyway. Yeah, it's just mm-hmm. a thought anyway. And I just well. gener- I just generated a lot more email. <laughs> <laughs> Look Look at us being name-level podcasters managing our domains. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I know what he means. I, I've often thought it would be fun to run a campaign um, that was specifically the domains management part of D&D, but in a way that's really becomes a whole different game. And I've it's usually the people that find that the most interesting are the ones who are less likely to be the ones to start a first-level character and work them up to name level so they can do that to begin with. Ah, you got a point. Yeah, so you either it, like the adventuring or you like the domain management. Right. Yeah. And by the time you've enjoyed adventuring, it's like, well, I don't want to retire and do well, domain everything. I of, want to find a bigger, badder dungeon. Think of it this way. Well, at least try and think of it this way. I'm going to try. I can try to think. Um you know, when you're adventuring, you're adventuring all those literary people who like the Conan and Vance and Moorcock and all that kind of people. All that claptrap. All, all <laughs> that. Well, yeah, but that's what they're recreating in their mind is those kind of stories. You move into domain management, you're dealing with playing with something that the author would give, like maybe what one paragraph to in a book. Well, I think you're you're moving to another thing. You're moving more yeah. to Arthurian mythos. I guess and- so. 
But it's all according to your taste, but I have no interest in wearing a jeweled crown on a troubled brow. Same here. Yeah, and I wouldn't mind it. Um, I cut, sort of tried that in our last two e-game with dubious success. But even then, most of our management was, the domain management was only the back half of the game. We were still running around and adventuring and going okay. into dungeons and killing stuff and everything. Yeah. But I have almost, I think I've had three players in 30 years of gaming, maybe, who have been really interested in that. And two of them weren't in the same group. So, you know, it's, most people just don't. Those are the kind of older. Those are the kind of people you point to and go, okay, UDM. I was just going to say, most of my old original group are very into that end of the game, and they have a big time doing it. Yeah, I would disagree with that, Glenn, though, because then you those some of those people end up being the type of DMs who uh, we've all run into this type of DM who has an NPC that they just love. Right. And he's introduced whenever possible. The, the NPC is almost always perfect. They're always right. They're always saving the PCs because they're stupid or whatever. And most people don't like playing in games like that for some reason. Are you Mary suing my, <laughs> yeah, well, my game? Yeah, well, that's what the, yeah, those DMs are basically doing. They're Mary suing. You know, and, you know, that can get really dull. I have played in Champions games are really bad about that. Sometimes the the you know, they have their hero or group of heroes. Oh yeah, that are, that are the quote unquote Avengers. Whereas you're lucky if your group of PCs are the New Mutants or you know <laughs> yeah Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck. Yeah, yeah. Your group's your base is under an overpass. Justice you know. League Antarctica. Yep. Yep. <laughs> We, I had I had a, I had a superhero in, in Champions one time that just that insisted on using the danger room even if even if they're, while they're still building it. So he's dodging like two by fours and steel beams and stuff. Oh, guy, this is great! The guy who was running this particular Marvel superheroes game, we were afraid to leave our base. Why? Because we couldn't walk out without half a dozen villains beating the hell out of us, dragging us off, and using us as hostages. Oh, brother. Only to be saved by the quote-unquote Avenger types. I mean, yeah, that that was dull. The butler was stronger than anyone else in the group. (laughs) Wow. The butler had armor, and he was far tougher than anyone else. Oh, that's good. Oh, please. What's the point? Oh, that's good. That's rich. So, yeah, but getting back on subject. Don't miss it, words, Mike. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But, yeah, it's, it's in a way, unfortunately, it's an apples and oranges type of game. It's uh-huh. a rare bird that likes both the adventuring part and then later the empire building, as it were. Unfortunately. Right. right. You're right, you're right, you're right. Anyway, any more emails? Well, we have one final email, and then the mailbag will be empty. Until next time. Our last email is from David Bledsoe, and he writes, Dearest Sodcasters. Hey, Dave. You're not related to Bob Bledsoe, are you? (laughs) Hey, Dave. Dearest Sodcasters, first, let me say that I am a 1E baby birthed on Moldvay and weaned on AD&D, 
fed Chewy until the cost of splat books choked me, and long <laughs> gone before 3E hit the shelves. Many years later, I started collecting TSR materials as my midlife nerd fix and came back to gaming through my bookshelf. Less dangerous than most of the midlife nerd fixes. Yes. I started with the Roll for Initiative crew. Still love those guys, but find my gaming Jones runs toward OD&D and basic these days. Mm. Plus, your podcast really seems to hit the meat and bones of the game. I I really appreciated the cast on role-playing in this show. I was and am a role-player versus the hack-and-slash player. Even as a kid, I created characters for their backstory and personality rather than their combat ability. The discussion about what to do when the adventurer leaves the monster women and children reminded me of a character I created in junior high called Garsh the Long-Winded, a half-orc thief. His backstory centered around being rescued by a paladin in a previous campaign. Casual. Yes, after a party wiped out his tribe. He was raised in the paladin's faith along with other human orphans. Garsh followed the general story path of the day. The church tried to instill their faith and lawful good alignment in the boy, but he rejected their teaching and became a thief. Okay, not Joshua. Not quite Joshua, but a a very similar backstory. Yeah. says he was a great character to play because he carried a grudge against paladins and clerics. He He took great joys in robbing them whenever possible. But their teaching did leave an impression, so he often against his will would do good deeds, take on quests to help the oppressed, and reluctantly play the hero. I was fortunate enough to have a DM who shared my passion for role-playing and backstory. Together, we created an awesome low-level character who ran on many adventures before dying at the hands of another paladin who lacked the compassion of the first. So, while I see Glenn's point that heavy-handed morality plays can really ruin a game, I will say, if they are carefully woven into a story, they can be a springboard to other campaigns and give and really give players and DMs an epic tale to run with. Keep on sodcasting. I will keep sod listening. Thanks, <laughs> Dave the Moderate. <laughs> I'll give I'll give him I'll give him some of that. Um because what I meant, heavy-handed morality plays, I meant games that, that the DM decides to make his players think. I, see, because I'm an what actor. thinking? <laughs> no, I mean, like, think about, you know, the world around you and, oh, my God, and, you know, all this other stuff. I like a good drama. I love good drama, okay, because I'm an actor. But, you know, that, I, I can see where he's getting at. What he did, I would have loved. Mm-hmm. Um. But, I think that's the conclusion yeah. we came to when we talked about that was right. that it was primarily a matter of context. If you have players at your, t- if you have a player at a table that suffers from post-traumatic s- stress syndrome from something that happened to him overseas, then you're not going to create a storyline that triggers that in your campaign, right? Intentionally, right? And so, is your DM giving you the problem with should you kill the baby orcs simply yeah. because he's trying to? be an ass to you. Yeah, yank your chain. Or yeah, or is he doing it because, you know, this is going to this is going to be, depending on what you and your party decides, 
this is going to take the the tone of the game into a brand new direction. Right. You know, is it, you know, does this have anything to do with the story or mm-hmm. is it just being placed in there to yeah. give you a problem? I role play to have good comedy and drama. I don't role play to study social ills. I'll that was the one bright spot last night in the game was after we killed the cockatrices, we yes. came over a mine cart and there's Hugs the Goblin, whose name is Hugs because he likes hugs. <laughs> and it was all the Dean Marcos role playing this guy, and that's when he's doing those Smeagol voice and Hugs is like, "Oh boy, I'm an adventurer now. I'm going with you guys." That was awesome. He's like, "Okay." I love that kind of stuff. He gave did that with a Goblin. Piece. He's like. Here, I have this treasure. You can have it. And gets him one copper piece. I'm like, dude, he just pinged your armor. You got tipped by a goblin. (laughs) It's a fine line between creating something for dramatic effect and social commentary um, over the head. And all I can say is, you know, that we've all gained with some players that literally need to be beaten over the head um, for them to even notice that there's a moral issue going on at all. well, I know some players that need beat over the head just for, just for, you know, bump and giggles. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I understand. Uh, yeah, it's like I'm I'm playing a lawful good character, but I have no problem whatsoever with killing this guy because he's in our way. And it's like, how do you rationalize this? <laughs> yeah, and if you got a lot, the arm off a, off an orphan. It's not like I killed him. Yeah. <laughs> that and a lot of angst, I really can't take. Anyway, uh, thank you, thank you, yeah. Joe. And uh, that I just yeah, that, and yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Is that hey, Bledsoe wrote that letter like he was related to Bob because or Rob because uh, it was very well written. It's like a little story. Yeah. I think that's the end of our. I think that, our mail is empty. That, yep, that we have reached the end of the mail. <laughs> so that means the end of our Goodbye. episode. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it is. Yeah. Although speaking of the, you know, Jim, you were talking about how you now have a a goblin tagging along with you, determined to be an adventurer too. That kind of reminds me. Remember when we were playing with George, you know, and we had that. Was it a goblin or an orc? Orc. That, yeah, that we, we found it in the green room in Castle Amber. <laughs> yeah, and he kind of tagged along with us, and we couldn't get him to leave, and he's just begging us to let him stay. I take care of your horses. I won't even eat them. Yeah, he actually said that. It's like, I'll look after your horses. I won't even eat them. You know. Won't even. Yeah, you know, and we're just kind of going, well, gee, I don't know. And he's like, please. <laughs> See, a little bit of that is like having, you know, uh, Strax as part of your uh, Doctor Who companion family. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Which Liz and I are still the opinion that they need to do a show a spinoff show on Vastrus, Trax, and Jenny. That that so needs to be a new show. It can take the place of the Sarah Jane Adventures. Yeah. But it probably... So Steve Moffat, if you're listening, and I know you are. Sure, because <laughs> our, our podcast is that great. It is. <laughs> All right. Well, once again, heading out on the road. Yep. Down the dusty highway... Following the the, the mail mail truck to see if we can get a new batch of emails. I guess so. 
I'm running. How are you? How are you going, Glenn? I'm running from the Game of Thrones, and if they get too close, I'm going to throw Corbett at him. <laughs> Jim, uh, I'm just trying to manage my domain so that I'm ready to go to Gen Con in three days. All right. Yeah. Days. Wow. So you get your entourage ready. That's perfect. That's all right, Liz. Well, I am going down the road with Garsh the Long-Winded before he was killed by that nasty paladin and thinking of how I can weasel my way into reading another Corbett email the next time he sends one. (laughs) I will find a way to read it. Challenge issued. (laughs) And Mike? Costa man beware. (laughs) Well, good night, everybody. We'll see you in episode 78. Good night, everybody. We'll have an actual topic. (laughs) Good night. Free arc. The Savor Die podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions, and the Savor Die theme is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.pancamp.com. Free arc. Copyright Mike Stewart Productions Limited. Any resemblance to persons or game systems, living or dead, is purely intentional and probably grounds for litigation. So sue us. Really. We need the publicity. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die.